in today's world, it's so hard to compete as an individual investor with institutional capital unless you have access to data or very, very localized knowledge. If you're just starting out and you're looking to make investments, if you have grown up in the same neighborhood for 30 years and you want to buy your first home and you know specifically, uh, it should be this side of the street and a particular finish out in this house. I know that one's going to sell deep down my gut, right? You don't need tools for that. You can just go and, and go with your gut. But as you have to begin managing a variety of different properties, and that could be whether it's townhomes or single family homes or multifamily complexes or what have you, that complexity will bog you down. And that's when it makes sense to use an aggregation platform like Cherry. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? <laughs> People don't think it's a difficult question, but that for me, it's like picking a favorite <laughs> child. Ben and Jerry's is so clever with every name and I love so many of their flavors. Like the one that's been most recently on my wife's mind because she's pregnant is the Tonight Dough. That's Jimmy Fallon's flavor. It's very, very chocolate heavy, has a little bit of caramel in it. And I challenge anybody to like sit down and be like, I'm just going to have one bite of this. Yeah. Chocolate and caramel is a tough combination to beat for sure. Are you guys throwing any toppings on there? No, I'm a purist. You give me the flavor needs to have everything in it. If I need to put a bunch of stuff on it, that's a problem. Okay. Okay. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? Yeah. My role is global head of innovation for a data analytics platform called Cherry. We've been around six and a half years now, have a little over $3 trillion of assets managed on the platform, and we're a global platform. Awesome. Well, I was super excited when I saw the company that you work for, Cherry, because I didn't know much about the real estate information space and some of the cool stuff you could do about it. And it's been interesting to kind of learn and watch some of the product demos. But before we get into Cherry, take us back. Where did your real estate journey begin? Right out of college. How we all start. I was a grunt, right? I think the term is analyst. <laughs> yeah, just That meant about a lot of research, a lot of note-taking, being a fly on the wall in meetings. And I think I just got really lucky. I went to my bosses and asked how I could rise the ladder. And their advice was either get a CFA or, or get an MBA. And I chose MBA. And I just happened to be what it was, must have been the second week of grad school when Lehman crashed. So while a bunch of people were in the middle of their careers and, and maybe had deployed a bunch of capital that became at risk, I got to sit on the sidelines and watch it all play out. And that likely would scare away a lot of people from that type of career when everything is cratering and everything is chaotic. But there's one thing I learned early in my career, it's that chaos creates opportunity. And so I took a bunch of courses and did an internship in grad school around the idea of real estate and the nexus of technology. There really was no prop tech back then. I graduated from grad school in 2010. And then from there, I spent nine years across a variety of management consulting firms doing real estate technology projects, right? Some of that meant just selecting the best accounting system for an owner operator or looking at interesting lease workflow tools or CRMs. And then the most exciting work was going to a large conglomerate and telling them what tech they need to be deploying. And that was the role I fell into when I was at Deloitte. My job was mostly US-based, but I would say I spent time in about 25 other countries understanding 
how mature the ecosystem was and what type of technology companies were ready for. From there, I discovered a startup that was visualizing data and became their COO for about three years. And that was where I discovered this problem that Cherry solves, right? which is the need to ingest, integrate, audit, and then eventually visualize information so that investors mostly, we do this for all property types and personas, but it's really about the investors and owners, how they can make better decisions and make more money. So from my point of view, I think real estate is still, and prop tech in general, is still an undermaturated form of the technology industry. Would you typically agree with that? Or what was it like in 2010? Well, I mean, 100%. Now, obviously, different property types, different geographies are a little more mature than others. I think residential has always been ahead of commercial, just as a generality, because anytime something is directly consumer-facing, it requires more innovation. As the market changes, people expect that change to happen quicker. Versus when you're at a large institution, if you don't have to interface with a bunch of customers, you have the luxury of having the longer time horizons before you implement tech. That being said, let's say residential number one, retail number two, because obviously they're interfacing with a bunch of customers. So retail tech has they've been more early adopters. Typically commercial office and industrial are the last to move forward, but that's changing. I didn't hear the term prop tech as an actual recognized industry term till probably 2015-ish. And that was when they weren't just starting out, but companies like VTS and Hightower that were competing in the lease workflow space. The first pipeline tools were beginning to launch. ERP tools were starting to go into the cloud. That's the Yardi, MRI, Oracle, JD Edwards, which is now getting sunsetted. RealPage grew a bunch. And most real estate companies didn't have to care until around 2017 to deploy tech. Because if you had money from 2010 to 2017, interest rates were super low and expectations were even lower and there were deals to be had. So without deploying a bunch of technology, you could find deals, underwrite the deals, close them, operate them, flip them, sell them, and then use that track record to raise capital without a lot of deep questions getting asked. But then starting in around 2017, you had a proliferation of new technology tools, new mandates from the pools of capital everybody wants to secure, which is pension funds and sovereign wealth funds. They started asking more than just what was my IRR. You know, They asked about ESG. They asked about housing affordability. They asked about waterfall structures. They asked about contractors, things that these companies didn't have to answer before. And then all of a sudden, that meant they needed new tools to solve those problems and answer those questions. Yeah. And you mentioned a term there that I want to make sure we have a standardization on, but what does lease flow mean? So to me, that means the marketing, the touring, the securing of letter of intent, and then eventually the closing of a lease in a building. Now that building can mean a lot of things. That could mean a suite in an office building. It could mean a unit at the bottom floor of a tower, which is housing retail. It could mean all or a portion of an industrial logistics warehouse. And it could mean a single family home which until very recently was just used to buy. But now you're seeing a lot of people getting into renting houses, either because they can't afford the down payment or because they want to build credit into ownership. Yeah, got it. So when you were at EY, you were basically going into some of these commercial and real estate focused companies, teaching them about the technology that they could implement in their business, whether it be ERPs, which are electronic record processing 
tools, basically, accounting systems and things like that. But now that seems to be table stakes. And then the problem I see in real estate overall is there's so many disaggregated tools. And what I mean by that is I have to go to LoopNet for this, and then I go to SAP for that. And then my accounting system talks to something else. And oh, by the way, I need a customer front-facing portal, which is actually this. Is that still what you're seeing in the market today? All the time. I think of information coming from three different buckets, right? That's the first bucket is publicly available information that's spread out, often dated, but available to anybody who wants to scrape it, pull it, bring it into their ecosystem to make decisions with it. Then there's similarly publicly-ish data that is available via subscription. So it's you might have access to some data, but not all of it. But by subscription, you can get access to a deeper set of information and it's just available directly for purchase. Then there's the completely proprietary information internal to an organization that they gather in a variety of tools. That could be internal comps, that could be transactions and journal entries, that could be work orders and capital transactions, capital projects, that could be ESG type information, in-building information. Only when you combine free and paid public data, third-party private data, and internal data all together, do you get what I would call an optimal data model that can allow you to make decisions that drive a bunch of enterprise value in your company. And that's whether you're a company as large as Blackstone or Starwood or Brookfield, all cheery clients, or you're an individual investor just looking to like buy your first duplex and build your own portfolio. And that's what essentially Cherry does, right? Is go grab that publicly information. So those are tax records, last sold, all that sort of stuff. Non-public information that is provided by RealPage, Yardy, and things like that. And then proprietary information, like you mentioned, building audits and lease audits, and you can upload your own leases. Is that correct? That's right. And obviously, the larger, the more complex entity or group of entities you become, the more it makes sense economically to use a platform like Cherry. But... In today's world, it's just, it's so hard to compete as an individual investor with institutional capital unless you have access to data or very, very localized knowledge, right? If you're just starting out and you're looking to make investments, if you have grown up in the same neighborhood for 30 years and you want to buy your first home and you know specifically it should be this side of the street and a particular finish out in this house. I know that one's going to sell deep down my gut, right? You don't need tools for that. You can just go and, and go with your gut. But as you have to begin managing a variety of different properties, that could be whether it's townhomes or single family homes or multifamily complexes or what have you, that complexity will bog you down. And that's when it makes sense to use an aggregation platform like Cherry. Got it. So I saw some of the demos out there and it looked like I can manage my own portfolio. So I can look at, hey, I own this apartment complex, that apartment complex, this self-storage, here's some internal metrics around that, et cetera, so I can produce reports. But it also looked like I could go grab any information that I wanted. So, hey, there's a multifamily across the street that I'm interested in buying. Who owns it? When did they buy it? And all that sort of information as well. Is that correct? That right there is what makes Cherry so unique, right? There are a bunch of companies out there that purport to integrate and visualize data. Most of them concentrate only on internal systems, or most of them concentrate only on providing one specific data feed. What makes Cherry so unique is combining those together. So let's We'll use SFR data kit. So it's how would you leverage single family residential data to make the best investment decisions? Like think about all the information you might need. Recorder information, assessor information, title information, unmasked owner information, 
property information. So we pull in via partnership with a bunch of other data companies. We bring in like very detailed data, like a flag to identify whether this transaction was arm length, whether we think this particular home is a flip based on time of ownership and increase in market value. What's the square footage of the unfinished portion of the basement? I mean, it goes really deep. And the reason we think the data needs to be that deep is because if you need to make a decision fairly quickly without having to fly out to visit the property, compete with someone who's local who can be there, you have to make the decision fast. And granted, with interest rates where they've gone, I bet deal flow transactions are going to be lower this year than it was last year. But at the same time, you've got deployed capital. You need to make decisions with it. And you need the information to be down to that granular level of detail so you can write your own models and say, okay, I'm only looking for four-bed, three-bath homes remodeled within the last six years that are open plan and have some natural light. Okay. Seems simple on its face, but the amount of data you have to bring in to be able to do that without going and seeing the home yourself is significant. Yeah. And I've seen some stuff like this for single family and residential. I've never seen anything like this for the commercial side. So when I was watching one of your demos, it looks like I could pull up the multifamily that I want to acquire across the street or down the road, see what company owns that, not the people, obviously, because they probably have it in LLC. And then I think I saw some tools where you could actually look and see what else they own in their portfolio and decide, hey, this might be somebody that I want to go have a deeper relationship with because they also own 20 properties in my area versus just this one. Yeah, the genius from owner unmasking via LLCs is you won't always get the, the percent the accurate percentage of ownership, but you'll get that they're participating, whether they're controlling or non-controlling. And that's really all that matters. If they're the controlling partner, they're making the operational and management decisions, or they've farmed them out to a property manager, or they're just a passive investor, which means they're writing checks and relying on the operating partner to deliver the goods. But it's not only helpful in multifamily, right? It's not just who owns that property. It's what's the typical bedroom type makeup? What's the average credit rating of tenants inside the building? What's the foot traffic look like around that property? But to do that, what you need, foot traffic is going to be SafeGraph or Placer AI or Habitatum. You might have ESG carbon footprint information, which is becoming more popular. That's going to come from Measurable or, or DeepKey. And there's just no shortage of data sets and information. So oftentimes people will come to us saying, we raised some money, we have a thesis, what are we missing? So it's not just we're providing the platform, but we're helping them think about data sets that they might need and then introducing them to those data partners where we've already built relationships with them. Yeah, awesome. So we've talked enough about how an investor or a real estate operator owner could use the tool. But I've also heard you talk a little bit about like foot traffic, for instance, how non-real estate focused companies could also leverage your tool to make better decisions. Specifically, I'm thinking of like the Starbucks and the Domino's pizzas of the world, et cetera. Do you have any clients currently that aren't real estate focused that are leveraging the tool today that you could share? Yeah, not that I can talk about publicly. Sure, yeah. Actually, my favorite ones are hedge funds. They won't let you mention their name at all anywhere. And they're going to their investors saying, look at this amazing alpha we're creating when it's powered by Cherry. That's really annoying is what it is. Their check's clear. An occupier has very different needs, mostly because they don't often own the underlying real estate. They're just leasing it from other owners. So what do they need to understand? They need to understand how much they are leasing, where that footprint is, how many people are utilizing that space on a daily or weekly basis. What are the macroeconomic trends during the life of their lease, or maybe the five years after their lease that are going to affect availability of public transportation or the floor plan 
within the rest of the building that they're occupying or the financial health of the landlord, what might changes might happen to their buildings. So with that information, what could a Starbucks do? Well, they'd have more leverage at the negotiating table when they go to either blend and extend or rethink their lease footprint. They might be able to rethink how much of a real estate footprint they need in a particular submarket or a downtown business district. Or if, if their employees are more spread out, maybe they're now thinking about more of a hub and spoke model and opening satellite offices. Or maybe they're thinking about partnerships with co-working spaces and building out more flex time for people to just come in and hotel or they need to go. Occupiers are super interesting. What I have learned though, over the last five years, it's not just a real estate play. You kind of need to understand their business. So yes, Starbucks is a massive let least lessee of real estate, but they're a food and beverage provider. So you kind of need to understand what they're thinking about from a consumer perspective, what demographics are prolific, but you have to know the business. If you're going to do something for a pharmaceutical company, you have to know how they might treat a manufacturer, the other product and et cetera. Yeah, got it. And then do you all have services to help them tailor their solution for what their needs are? consulting services? Try to bring on consulting partners to do a lot of that work because we want to be a SaaS product, right? We want to be the underlying data infrastructure and visualized and reporting product. And there are a bunch of people like me who've been in the real estate business for two decades and bring a lot of domain expertise, but we're not going to be everywhere all at once. So we love working with consulting firms that will say, here are the questions you're not thinking about that you need to be asking yourself as a business at the very early stages of deployment of our platform. And then some obviously as ongoing advisors, but it's often most helpful at the early stages. What should you prioritize? A large company, they might have 25 different sources of information. Well, what are the five that you need to integrate right now versus waiting six months? And that answer probably is different now than it was a year ago. A year ago, everyone cared about accelerating transaction volume, right? Finding, like deploying that capital, getting the best deals that they can in a low interest rate environment. And they optimally manage the assets they already own so that while there's a environment of market uncertainty, you can best manage your assets and get the best deal you can on them. So then when the time gets better, you have a track record to advertise and raise more capital to go deploy it when it's more optimal time for acquisition. Yeah, it's almost like plugging the leaking boat, right? Like if you got a stable business right now, the best thing you could do is plug all your holes before you think about how do you get the next deal or the next growth, especially yeah. as we're going into these next couple of years here and rising interest rate environments. And it will very much depend on the property type. If you're a mom and pop single family home renter, are you attracting a young family who's going to commit to being in your home for multiple years? And so you don't really have to worry about having a realtor helping you, having to market the unit, having a consistent tenant so property management becomes easier, right? That's a very different thought pattern for an office landlord who's putting in popular and growing and attractive to the right consumer base because you might be charging base rent, but you might also be getting a percentage of the sales volume. So what's going to be the most popular concepts? It's very, very different by property type. Yeah, super interesting. I mean, I'll just net out this conversation as you're taking a very fragmented industry and rolling it all up into one aggregated tool to help you better make decisions, whether investing in deploying capital or operating your buildings on the back end. Yeah. At the end of the day, every building in the built world follows the same cycle. We have to find deal before our competitors do and put a bid in. We want to 
underwrite the risk, avoid one, an investment that could blow up our portfolio. Once the bid's accepted, we want to close that transaction as fast as we can because advisory costs affect returns. Once we own the building, we want to optimally management and increase profit as much as possible while not making worse the tenant experience because that leads to churn and turnover and additional costs. And then we want to sell the property at the right time and then go tell everybody how great we did so we can get more capital and do it all over again. And that doesn't matter whether you're doing that for an industrial warehouse, a senior living facility, lab space for life sciences, it all ends up being a similar workflow. Yeah. Well, Kevin, on the personal note, you are also an Ironman triathlete and we were kind of nerding. We almost didn't get to record today because we were nerding out on Ironman so much. So I kind of want to pull this thread because my listeners know that I'm a big triathlon, a triathlete as well. What do you think Ironman has taught you about personal and professional success that maybe other avenues wouldn't have taught you? Oh, because the Ironman, I think, is like the pinnacle of triathlon. I didn't start with that as a goal. I had that as like my long-term stretch goal. It's always have good to have a goal that seems completely and woefully unattainable at the time you come up with it. And then having goals that get you to that end goal. So for me, it was, okay, do a sprint, then do an Olympic distance, then do a half Ironman, then do a full Ironman. And it took two years from the time I thought I wanted to do it until I actually did it. And that building up also helped me understand proper training methods and nutrition and coaching and the right support network and accountability that you need to to get it done. Also, if I had tried to go from zero to full Ironman, I probably would have burned out and I would have done it. And, or I would have gone all in to the neglect and detriment of everything else in my life. So I did that full distance. I did the half before we were engaged. And then I did the full when we were engaged, not yet married. And then after we got married and got pregnant, I went back to Olympic distance races because training takes a long time, but it was building an actual muscle, right? I now have the habit of doing something, being active every single day. And that being active helps so much more than just physical health. It's mental, right? It gives me more patience with my little toddlers, my adorable daughter terrorists, (laughs) and gives me more patience, more energy, more excitement in my career. I think it also helps marriage, like just to to be physically active. And it was hard for me to just be generally physically active without it with some just nebulous belief that I needed to be physically active. I needed something to train for, to first build that habit. And now that the habit's built, it's a little easier to maintain. So you weren't married when you were training for your full? Correct. And she still decided to marry you? So this is a great story. So she moved to Dallas. Oh my God, I hope she's okay with me telling this story. She moved to Dallas after law school. And my parents with friends with her parents, loosely related, they said, oh, you should show her around the city. I was like, oh, I've seen this game before. Okay, sure. I invited her to this happy hour where a group of us were training for the race to raise some money for charity. And so I thought this was like the way I was going to impress her. And I think she showed up with one of her friends and there were, I think, 12 guys and one girl in this group like that were training and all sharing beers. She looked at it and just said, nope, turned around, walked away, sent me text messages. I didn't really like what I saw there, not the right place to meet you. When you want to take me out on a real date, wow. let, me, let me know. <laughs> I, was just so, I was so floored. I was intrigued. And yeah. uh, that then six months later, we were engaged. And it actually helped that I was training when we first met because she knew that was a huge 
part of my life. And so I was able to like decrease the amount of time I was training and it was totally digestible versus if I hadn't been training before. And then I tried to introduce at that time, it was like 15 hours a week. That's a lot. Yeah. It's a very selfish sport, but it's so rewarding. Anyone that listening to your podcast and is thinking to themselves, it's pretty daunting. Just start by training for a sprint. If you're in shape, you actually don't even need to train for the race. You could just do it on the weekend. Not a lot of adrenaline moments, that anticipation right before you either jump into the pool for a circle swim or start in the ocean for a race and nothing builds satisfaction crossing that finish line. You are like so physically beat before you do it. And like two minutes after you cross the line, after you caught your breath, you're like, when's the next? Yep. Yeah, I asked the question because there's always those signs that on the race course that it's like if you're still engaged, you're still married or have friends, you didn't train hard enough. But I completely agree with you. Like the last two to three miles of an Ironman race are the most special energetic moments that you will ever have in your life. People would think that that's when you're beat down and that's when you have the most energy. And it's fun to like go back and look at my times and see not on the halves because the halves are a whole different race for me. But on the fulls, you can see the last two to three miles are usually my best clips in terms of how fast I'm running. Yeah, the most dejected I was in my longer distance races was like about a third of the way through the run because I'm not a strong runner. And I would have like a 72 year old man (laughs) jogging past me. I am past you. Keep it up, son. Or the like 12-year-old girl prodigy just, I mean, like rocketing past me, like, great job. And that's demoralizing. But once you get through that, you realize that one of the only sports where everyone's kind of in it together with the same goal and really who you're competing with is yourself. I'm glad you said that because I think Ironman is a very special community. I mean, there's people who are double amputees or people fighting cancer. I mean, there's people that have finished races with ALS. And then there's a guy out there named Chris Nicky who has Down syndrome, who's now making the circuits and making the PR news. And my sister, before she passed, had Down syndrome. So that was like very, very special in my heart to see that. Anytime I'm really feeling like I've lost some motivations, this has happened recently, but kind of earlier on when I first joined a startup where I was just feeling dejected. And I thought, like, there's just no end to this. All you got to do is pop on one of those Iron Man documentaries and you see the guy with no legs, like doing the race. You're like, okay, clearly I'm making mountains out of molehills here. And I'm complaining about something I shouldn't be complaining about. Let's get back on this and get back to work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to take us now to our last round. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first one is, what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? This is the part where I have to confess that I don't feel like I have a lot of time to read physical books. And I haven't read a physical book in probably a decade. The last book series I read was Harry Potter and it was amazing. I loved it. But I'm an audiobook guy. And so I absolutely love diving to audiobooks. And there are a few great ones. The Hard Thing About Hard Things, which is Ben Horowitz, who's founder of Andreessen Horowitz. Anything about scaling. So Reed Hoffman and his group Masters of Scale. I've read a couple of their audiobooks listened to them. And then the one I just most recently started reading is called The First 90 Days, Mm -hmm. It's How to Add Value at a New Company. And that's been like fascinating. I recommend that to anybody who is about to join a new company or is actively interviewing. It really helps you prepare to understand how you should be engaging with a new team to add value without kicking the hornet's nest too many times. 100%. Just a side note, did you see that Reid Hoffman is going to come out with a new podcast where he's going to interview ChatGPT and he gave ChatGPT a voice. So he's going to talk about scaling using ChatGPT as his guest. I'm not surprised, but I'm super intrigued. 
Yeah, go check it out. I heard it on the All In podcast yesterday. So that might be an interesting one. Chat GPT is taking over the world, like zero to a million users in five days. Yep, yep. Our second one is, what is the, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits that you have and the things you do every day. What are some of the habits that you have every day? So I'll talk about family first. When I'm in town, I am always the one that does the morning routine and takes the kids to school. It's like a nice start to the day. It grounds me, keeps me focused with family because I travel a bunch for work. And when I'm gone, my wife has to do it all on her own. Where obviously we have some family here, support network. But I like being able to like have the routine to drop the kids off at school because then like my day can actually start. Also, as much as possible, I try to do some sort of workout class. A lot of people are like really internally motivated and they can do a lot of training on their own. You need to be able to do that for, especially if you're in, into Ironman. But I like the social connection aspect of working out. So I do a bunch of classes. It also, if I sign up for the class, I have to go, right? Or yeah. I dinged or whatever in the, in the program. So I like having that accountability as well as that social connection of working out. And then the last thing, this is not an endorsement. I'm not a sponsor or get compensated, but I really have gotten into the AG1 Athletic Greens movement. I drink oh, yeah. it every morning in lieu of breakfast. It's probably a placebo and just nicely tasting vitamins, but it really has helped me kind of have that together is like my morning routine. I don't really need other routines as long as I have my morning routine because then the day can operate like a chess game. It doesn't matter. Yeah, funny you said that about the AG1 because I recently started doing it as well. I have some digestive issues, so like I only take half of it, but I'm starting to feel a noticeable difference in the morning time. It wakes me up, gives me a little bit of clarity and I do feel a little bit better from it. And I've never gotten into meditation. Any that. I've tried it and I just, it didn't take. So that without that, that's kind of my meditation is taking a Yeah, Yeah. Our third one is, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? I've received so many good pieces of advice over the year. I've had great bosses. But the one that always sticks with me, because multiple people have said this to me, is you can go fast alone, but you can go far together. And I know it's really cliche, but I have very much experienced that being an executive at a company where I grew employee headcount by what it was about 5x in two years and revenue by almost 50x, you get overwhelmed. And sometimes you feel like you have to operate quickly. And so instead of delegating, you just dive in and do it yourself. And I found that I can get tasks done quickly when I do that, but I haven't solved the problem because then when the same issue comes up again, I have to do it myself because no one else knows how to do it. Being able to partner with others and teach others and learn from them is so, so powerful as you want to scale a business. I bet there are some really interesting systems and processes questions I could ask off of that, but maybe we'll hang out for a few minutes afterwards and I could ask those. Fourth one is, what is the thing that you're most proud of in your life? I mean, I know everyone says this and it's cliche, but I'm just really proud of my family. You know, my wife is a practicing attorney and helping with our two young kids and pregnant with a third and does it all with a smile on her face. And seeing little girls grow up, they can really drive you nuts at four in the morning, but it just nothing beats little games you can play with your kids. It kind of grounds you. I've had moments where I feel like I'm pretty self-important. Like if I get off stage at a conference and there were 2000 people and a hundred of them are waiting in line to talk to me, I feel so inflated self-importance. And then I get home and I kids couldn't care less what I did that day, right? So yeah. I go fill up my sippy cup. So it's just nice to have that grounding so you can remember what matters most to you at all. 
Yeah, I said grapes, not blueberries. Go get it again. <laughs> or no, no, no. Take the yeah. skin off. No, daddy, no, no. Yeah. You know what? Cut them in half. Yeah, I don't it, like it cut. Why did you cut it this time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the great part is when the goalposts move. Yeah. Well, our last one is, if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? My mind has changed on this answer so many times in the few days since I've been prepping for this podcast. Uh, but where I've landed officially is Volodymyr Zelensky, who is the president of Ukraine. And the reason why I say that, think about this guy's career trajectory. He was like a stand-up comedian who became an actor who landed a role literally playing the Ukrainian president and then had to become the actual president. When he first got elected, I think people thought it was going to be like a a show appearance, like the guy who was elected Italy's premier for a while. I remember forgetting his name. He was a stand-up comedian. Mm -hmm. Star movement, but very, very quickly, the humor went away and he had to become a wartime president and someone with his background, it would have made sense that he might've fled to a safer place and managed the conflict from afar, but he didn't like he dove in. He was like, let's unite the people right now. And I just like, I'm really impressed by that trajectory. And I'd love to understand over a bowl of ice cream, like what's he thinking about right now? Like, where is that conflict going to be? Where's their country going to be? Where are his people going to be 24, 36 months from now? Yeah. I'm so glad you touched on the fact that he didn't flee. Like, I think that was the world was watching and the world would have given him a lot of slack to run away with his family and go manage the conflict from afar, even if it was within the borders of his country. But to stay in Kiev while the Russians were barreling down the road to Kiev, I think was the defining moment probably of the 2020s. And we're only in 2023 right now. 100% agree. Well, Kevin, a fantastic conversation. I've loved learning more about you and also about Cherry. Like I said, I was not familiar with Cherry before we kind of set this interview up and some of the demos that I saw, I think it's a super, super valuable tool. But if our listeners wanted to reach out to you, learn more about you or Cherry, where's the best place we could point them? So LinkedIn's always the best bet because I am active on it. Search my name, Kevin Stoffman. The only thing I ask is that if you send a connection request, you do it under the context of this podcast because I have no shortage of requests from people that are trying to sell me stuff. And I would prefer to like just engage about interesting real estate topics. You can also find me on Twitter, K Stoffman. I have a lot less content there, but I've come around on Twitter. I still think sometimes it's the bathroom stall of the internet, but there are some really, really interesting communities on Twitter in the world of real estate tech that are a lot more honest on that platform that I think they might be in other places. And if you're an investor, you can get some valuable intel about the market. If you're a prop tech company, you can get honest customer feedback without the veil of corporate speak. And I just think it's a great, great platform, great tool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we will link all those in the show notes. And then Kevin, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.